Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. If this is your first time finding your way here, please note that you are bound to listen forever. It's part of the terms and conditions. So welcome along for the journey. Let's start off by thanking our newest patron, Chris M. Thank you so much for joining the patron family. It means a lot to have you, getting us a little bit closer to our goal of $500 a month on Patreon, at which time I'm going to release a patron-only podcast as a way to say thank you. If anybody else would like to help sustain the show, you can head over to my brand new website, bikesordeath.com. There's several ways you can support the show through Patreon as a sustaining member. PayPal, you can give a one-time donation and you can check out the web store while you're there. Been filling it with lots of cool merch and I've got lots of goodies on the way. Volley straps. I just ordered Thai flask and titanium cups for your camping needs, people. Such goodies coming so soon to the Bikes for Death web store. So keep a lookout. If you want to stay up to date, Instagram's a way to kind of uh, stay in tune with what we got going on, and as is the newsletter. At the website, you'll find a, uh, a place to join the newsletter. Every month, a member of the newsletter will get a $25 gift card to the web store as a way to uh, just entice y'all to be there. It's also a good way to stay up with things going on in Bikes for Death land. I don't send out very many emails. I don't have time. I don't, I'm don't. i busy. I don't have time to email you like all the time. So you don't have to worry about spam for me. Just uh, usually about one a month going out, letting you know everything that's going on. Okay. Well, as I just alluded to, there is a brand new Bikes for Death website as of today. Hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, I'm recording this on Tuesday. The new website is going to go live Wednesday, as is this podcast there may be a little bit of overlap in terms of the podcast is going to come out first thing in the morning. And then I think later on in the day, we're launching the website. So, but anyway, it's uh, it should be coming if everything goes according to plan. And if all the uh, computer gremlins are feeling generous and don't delay our master plans, then we should be up and running and you can go over there, check it out and uh, give us some feedback. I'm very, very, very excited about this. It's been a project that we've been working on in the background for several months now, and I'm really proud of how the website is being built. You know, throughout the course of Bikes for Death, since the very beginning, I've had generous people offer to donate time, talents in different ways, and this website is being built, uh, well, I should say it was designed by my friend Catherine, who had donated some artwork previously, and then I was able to um, hire her to design the new website. And Alyssa was volunteering on the back end with some website management stuff, some techie stuff that I'm not very good at. And she is now building the website and helping me launch it. Um, so it's been really cool to um, have people from the community come and support me in the very beginning. And then as I've grown a little bit here, I am just really stoked to be able to like reinvest in those people who believed in me and were able to help out. So if you want to learn more about them and the little Bikes for Death team that we got going on, head over to the About page and uh, there's a little bio and a picture of everybody so you can kind of see the other people who are involved that, you know, you just hear me, but as I've grown this thing and the demand continues to grow and the opportunities do as well, I need help. And I've been very fortunate to have some really solid people in the community 
step up and really make this happen. I couldn't do it without them. So just want to give a shout out to them and thank them for believing in me and offering to help from the very beginning and continue to do so. So it's been a, a team effort. And what can I say? Go team. Head over to the Bikes for Death website. It's built by bike packers, designed by bike packers for bike packers. It's a great place to see all the episodes that we have. And we are adding to it now a blog section. And this is going to be an opportunity to share some different types of articles, videos, hopefully from the community. I get a lot of requests for interviews and ideas and topics and all kinds of cool stuff. And the truth is I want to do it all, but obviously limited by time, I can only do so much. And I would like the idea of opening up the blog to be a way for you to share your stories or what you've learned. And I think some things that are particularly interesting to me are, you know, beginners getting into it, how to's, how to do a route. Oh, geez, anything out. I, I really like, you know, mental health in the outdoors or drug abuse in the outdoors and how we use the outdoors as a positive uh, thing in our life or whatever it may be. I mean, I think the topics can be really broad, but I think the most important thing is that I'm open to accepting articles or how-tos or videos from from anybody. You know, you don't have to have a, a big reputation. If you're a commuter that just took your first bikepacking trip and want to share that story and how it went and the good and the bad and the ugly and the fun and the whatever. I think there's so much that we can learn from each other. And I love the idea of being able to put all that in one place so it can be a resource to everybody in the community and just another way to spread the stoke about bikepacking and getting more people outdoors. So if you have an idea or if you have something that you're interested in submitting to Bikes for Death and have it potentially be featured on there, head over to the website on the contact page, you'll see there's a little bubble thing. Fill out the little form. Let me know what you're thinking. And uh, you know, my people will call your people kind of thing, all right? All right, well, that's it, folks. Today's episode is brought to you by Kuat Bike Racks. That's the bike rack that I use. I'm an ambassador for them. I've used other bike racks and listen, there's a lot of great racks out there, right? A lot of great racks, but for me, I love the functionality. I love the way it looks. It's so well built and put together. And like I said in previous podcasts, they have the best customer service I think I've ever dealt with, or at least one of them. I mean, they just bend over backwards for their customers so here's the thing. I mean, you pay a lot of money for a bike. You want to get it to where you're going safely, right? And the last thing you want to do is pick up a crappy bike rack at insert whatever department store name here. You want to get something that's going to actually protect your bike. And let me tell you, I just got back from a camping trip in the rocky terrain of hill country in Texas here. And if you saw on Instagram, I just kind of stretched out the legs on the old van, just put some new tires and suspension and wheels on there. So it's a little bit more off-road capable. Well, I had my Kuat and my two bikes on the back all the whole time I was overlanding. So I have definitely put this thing through its paces. It has been all over the country and never had a problem. It works like a charm, always keeps my bikes protected. So remember Kuat because you love your bike. All right, well, listen, today's guest needs little to no introduction in the bike world. Maybe in the bike packing world, though. Ted King, he was a professional road cyclist from 2006 to 2016. Then in 2016, he switched to gravel, and he was the winner of the DK200. I think it's now called 
Unbound Gravel. And then in 2018, he won again. In 2019, he was the winner of the SBT Gravel. And you may have heard that just this last month, or God, it hasn't even been a month. It's only been like a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, he finished the Arkansas High Country race with a new FKT. So previously, Rebecca Rush has been out there. Jay Peterberry was out there. And we got this newbie, Ted King, who, yeah, he's a roadie. Yeah, he can do gravel for 200 miles. But we just learned that he can also push himself for four days, 20 hours, over 1,000 miles, and 80,000 feet of climbing. I mean, just a truly, truly incredible performance. I hope that y'all got a chance to watch the dot. I know it's crazy, but man, I'll tell you what, that is some dang good dot watching. It was going in opposite directions, and you had Andrew and you had Ted vying for first place. And part of the Arkansas high country is that you have to take selfies and check in and all this kind of stuff. So it kind of allows the watcher to be a little bit more engaged. So, but yeah, I had to obviously uh, see if I could snag an interview from him. And he was very gracious with his time and his willingness to do so. You know, he hosts a podcast too. He already did this on his podcast, so he could have just been like, ah, it's all right, kid. I, I got this. But yeah, I appreciate you coming on, Ted. Uh, it was a great chat. And what can I say? Welcome to bikepacking. Looking forward to see what you do in the future, my friend. All right. And as always, Miles Arbor is going to take it away with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Or death. Bikes. Or death. Podcast. All right, everybody. Well, my guest today uh, doesn't really need much of an introduction. Uh, Mr. Ted King is joining us on the interwebs, just coming fresh off an FKT at the Arkansas High Country Race. So first off, dude, thanks for coming on and congratulations. Let's give a little internet cheers here. Cheers. Virtual <sighs> virtual cheers. Yeah, I'll congrats. Um, yeah, thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, man, the Arkansas High Country kicked off on the 31st. It only took you four days and 20 hours. And so how long have you been off the Ar Arkansas High Country now? And how are you feeling? I finished on a Thursday. Today is Thursday. So it's been two weeks. I could really zero in. It's been two weeks and about 14 hours of them looking at this clock. And that's correct. I finished sometime around three in the morning. It's nice to be finished. It's a, it's a funny mix of I could definitely have gone slower and dished out the pain onto myself at a lesser rate. But there's a certain point in an event like that, you just want to finish. You know, I did it in sub five days. Uh, the immediate aftermath, I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to, We I drove out there in our van and we have an external shower and they have nice safe parking there in the top, top level of, of the, you know, downtown Fayetteville parking garage, whatever the heck. I literally thought I was going to finish the race high five Chuck Campbell, the race promoter, and and then take a quick shower out of the back of the van, take a nap and hit the road. In reality, I was absolutely destroyed. I got a hotel at the host hotel conveniently right there, spent the night, 
woke up that next day, woke up Thursday, a couple hours later. And I talked to my wife, you know, who's at home with our, our eight month old, which is not an easy job for almost two weeks straight. Yeah. I was like, I can't move. Like literally moving is hard. I don't feel safe behind the wheel. And so, you know, I, I spent another night in the hotel. I spent another night in Fayetteville. It was nice to decompress a little bit more. I didn't touch my bike for a week, which is, you know, that's effectively an off season for me. The, the, everything from the waist down was pretty destroyed. So, you know, just purely your legs have done what? A couple hundred thousand revolutions. I had a bit of tendonitis, my ankle and my knee, and that those have gone away. The residual thing, most, most notably, most certainly, most definitively are weakness and tingling in my hands, a little bit my feet, more so my hands. Yeah, it's so this tape that you see in my hands, I just came from a PT appointment as I'm trying to get all this jazz diagnosed. Was your uh, physical therapist like, what the hell did you do to yourself? It's really nice to have a medical team and have folks in your corner who who have a background in athletics, especially in, in cycling. So they're appreciative and, and understanding of the ridiculousness, but are also like, yeah, uh, you that was kind of dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever felt like this after one of your other events? So, I mean, for people who don't know, you were a professional road cyclist for 10 years. Then you got into gravel in 2016, I think, and you've won DK200 a couple of times. So you're no stranger to big efforts on a bike, long distances, all that kind of stuff. But anything close to this? No, there's certain slivers of similarities. Uh, I did earlier this summer, I did a one single 300 mile ride. It was across the state of Vermont. It was 90% gravel. It was a 21 hour effort all said and done. And I mean, that was like the biggest, that's certainly the biggest ride I've ever done by distance, uh, contiguously and most definitely the longest ride by time. I was tired the next day and I was, I was sort of fatigued for the week. My legs were tired, yada, yada, yada. But. I mean, I guess almost in proportion to Arkansas high country. And so with Arkansas high country, nowhere even on my radar at that time, I was like, yeah, man, I'm destroyed. That was so hard. And then it's, it's almost like a different level of hurt and soreness and fatigue that comes from professional bike racing on the road. I mean, it, you, you basically live in a chronic state of fatigue. Mm. You know, you're trying to get the, the most performance out of yourself. So you're always on the verge of sickness because you're training so hard and, and trying to rest as much as you can, but you know, that therein lies the balance. Yeah. At the end of a grand tour, you're just destroyed, but there's still, there was something totally new and different to me about this in this nonstop effort. Yeah. You know, traditional road racing is race for a set period of set distance on any given day on any given consecutive days, but then you're going to stop. And then you have a whole team of people, be it massage therapists and, and soigneurs who are catering <laughs> to you, who are serving you food, who are massaging you. And this yeah. was a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. I mean, talking about the medical team, I mean, you, you get off the bike and, you know, I've never been a professional cyclist, but you got a team there that's, that's going to put the calories back in, that's going to massage you, do whatever they need to do to get the most out of you for the next day. So this is just you going out, you know, on the high, high country. It's just, it's it's up to you. How bad do you want to suffer? How much do you want to deplete yourself? Can you recover from it? Or, or, you know, I mean, there's, it's, it's just you, there's no team. Obviously you come to it with a lot of experience, which is kind of interesting. And I want to kind of get into that later about how that translates into this event. But before we get into that, what put bikepacking on your radar? And then specifically why the Arkansas high country as your first event? So it was, it was basically a year and a half ago. That was my first 
foray into bike packing. Um, I did an event called the James Bay Descent, which went down the western coast of the James Bay up in northern Canada in mid-February. So that's the heart of winter, northern Canada, like high exposure, high risk. The two things I was worried about are polar bears and negative 40 degree temperatures. And as a rookie, thankfully, I had a very experienced team with me. There were three other friends of mine who, who were very experienced in this sort of high exposure, high risk activity. The previous winter, where it all caught my my interest and radar was the same three did a, uh, a self-supported hike across the Algonquin Park, which is Ontario's oldest provi- uh, provincial park. And I think they were out there for, I've, it's more than two weeks. I think it was about two weeks, um, maybe even close to three. So basically a grand tour of this crazy hike. And then the, uh, they wrapped that up. I was aware of them doing it. They wrapped that up and they said, hey, we're going to do something similar next year on fat bikes. And I'm just like, cool, there's my... I can do that. Like, let's go fat biking. The reality sunk in of what, what it all entailed. I mean, yeah, there's polar bears who are eating food and, and, you know, trying to bulk up that time of year, um, (laughs) going out on the ice and, and eating fish and penguins, whatever the heck penguins. Are there penguins up there? Is that the South pole? Um, I filled that class in high school. The quickest side is thankfully after, after the first day, that's when we were off the water. And that's when the risk of polar bears was gone. But then we still had the risk of the negative 40s nonstop. I survived that. It was really cool. It was fun to come to the end of that. And I don't know. I mean, just have my eyes open to bikepacking. I thought I was going to end up doing a lot more over the subsequent 18 months that brings us up to the present. And I just didn't. You know, I've had the equipment. It is a different animal. It's I've Our family has grown. We had our first child uh, coming on nine months ago. So it just hasn't happened, but it's still definitely been an allure. And then... Let's see. I mean, obviously, you know, without question, everybody's 2020 has been a atypical year. So normally I'm zipping off to races, but but this year it's been both parenting and, you know, figuring out ways to occupy my time, which is very easy to occupy your time when you're a first time parent. I knew Rebecca Rush. So the two the two sort of linchpin items, Rebecca Rush had done the route basically a, a year and change ago, and she set the FKT and just being friends and acquainted with, with her adventures. I knew she had done it. Then Sometime, I don't remember exactly when, a couple months ago, Bobby Wintle, owner of uh, of District Bicycles out in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, he posted that he was doing it and aware of it's happening and that he's doing it. And we had just gotten a van and, and you know, the ability to get out there safely. I was like, dude, you know, that looks really cool. Bobby, what do you know about this? Tell me everything you know. Let's do it. I picked Rebecca Rush's brain. And then it was it was soon thereafter that I committed to going to the Arkansas high country. How much research did you do about the route yourself? I mean, did you really get into it and have a really good awareness of what you were getting into before you signed up? Yeah, as best I could. I mean, I'm a pretty analytical fellow. So it was interesting talking to, I talked to basically the three people, uh, Bobby Winslaton, Rebecca Rush, and Jay Pettiveri. And, you know, Jay had the single person FKT. Um, he still did until I happened to take it. I love the community. I mean, like people are so willing and apt and ready to share and help out. And so I, I picked his brain. It is a, it's a bit of a different experience doing it in the heat of the summer versus the cold of the fall. Yeah, Jay did it in June this year. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he had humidity to deal with, heat. He got to pack super light and he had the benefit of a lot more daylight. But, you know, I mean, the heat of Arkansas in in that time of year, it can be brutal. I don't know how that equals out. I don't know if it was, well, I do know when you wrote it, it was, uh, you would have cold 
So you get to the top of the mountain, you'd be sweating from climbing a mountain, and then you'd, you know, immediately start descending and you get cold again. And you got to like figure that out. And like you said, you had to carry more stuff, but he had to deal with the heat. I mean, it is what it is. You know, the course is there and that's how FKTs, you know, go down. It's like the course is there, go have at it, you know? So I guess it is what it is, but it is cool that this community, and you're not the first to note on that, is is really open and welcoming and yeah, let's go out there and ride bikes and let the best person win. And obviously it was you. If somebody called me up tomorrow and said, like, give me all your tips, I'd be I'd do it in a heartbeat, you know? Like right. <laughs> I can already think of ways that I could outdo my own time. And I didn't set out with the intention of setting the FKT. So yeah, to actually hinge back to that original question, I did a lot of research. I did, you know, talking to those folks or doing the beta, which I'd never had to do before. I mean, looking at the distances and they really they drove home that point the the race promoter and race director chuck campbell like you don't want to be up a creek literally and figuratively and find out that you roll into a town and the one convenience store that you're banking on to have a meal that says they close at five maybe they close at three because it was a quiet day and they just decided to close the doors early so i i yeah i did the, try to really figure out those sort of details like how far could i shoot for in any given day where do i think i'm going to be sleeping where do i think i'm going to be refueling and that sort of truly the basic necessities yeah my next question was actually if you were going after the fkt you say no so what was your plan your goal your strategy going into it i would say realism was on my side so it was to finish finish safely i mean look what we had seven out of 20 finishers you know yeah and last year i think it was a similar ratio so i didn't want to bite off more than i could chew (laughs) the irony being this enormous loop is like you can be 500 miles away from the start and then say oh shoot like i'm done i need a ride home (laughs) not only do i have to figure out how to get back to my car but then i yeah they're they're just high level logistics my goal was to ride the fastest thousand miles i could and enjoy it and be safe and you know hopefully tell a good story i i brought brought a gopro along and you know we're we're piecing together a video now and yeah i don't know i didn't want to go in guns a blazing saying hey i'm gonna set a course record like yeah right not my jam so how did you train for it i mean obviously you have uh different training blocks that you've done for different events how did you train for this one how did that transfer over loosely um you hit on it earlier. You know, I, I raced 10 years on the road and I retired from professional road racing at the end of 2015. And then since then, I've been part of the gravel community in races up to 200 miles long. In this gravel side of my career, I still don't train. Like I ride my bike with a sense and awareness of, you know, what might I be lacking? Maybe I haven't done some threshold efforts or I haven't done some VO2s in a very long time. I'd be like, oh man, I haven't dug deep in two months. Maybe it's time to go dig deep today. Just basic, basic understanding of the macro. Like, what am I missing? What am I doing well at? What, whatever. Maybe it's time for a rest. And then fast forward to the current, having the the high country on my radar. It's it's just sort of unfathomable, even post facto, to train for it. My wife and I got a van this summer, and that was amazing. And the purpose of that was to introduce our daughter, Hazel, to her family, who's all, her maternal side of the family is all in Seattle. And so we had a great, safe, fun trip coast to coast. And, and that was a blast. But, you know, for two months, it sort of stuck a dagger in any sort of fitness that I may have had previously. It was ride whenever you could for as long as you could. But, you know, that meant like a half hour here or an hour and a half there. And we got back from that mid-September. And I it was like, all right, time to sort of buckle down. So in my mind, I'm like, I need to do long rides to get ready for the high country. And the longest ride I did was, I think, 10 hours. 
which is a fraction of one day in the high country. So I think I probably did five long rides. And by long, I mean anywhere from six to 10 hours. I did a couple sixes. I did one eight and I did a 10 hour ride. And every time I've talked about this before, it's strange to you parcel out the energy and effort you have for that period of time. So even if it was like a three hour ride, you know, you come home pretty smoked after a three hour ride, you can go by your day, but like you've left it all out there to a degree, no different than a 10 hour ride. Like you put it all out there and then you come home and you're like, all right, I'm smoked. It's flipping the switch in your mind. That's kind of frightening because you're like, well, shoot, I need to do that 10 hour ride again. Yeah. That's a potty break. And then, you know, grabbing some Cheetos and then you're back on the bike for 10 more hours. Exactly. It's a, it's just a total mental reset. So a message, I don't think it was ever explicitly said, but it's a, it's, it's understood. I think in the bikepacking community is you're going sort of the fastest slow you can go the most consistent pace you can, because you're going to ride so darn long, like given the opportunity to get off your bike and walk up something steep, do it. Given the opportunity to sprint through a green light, don't do it. (laughs) Those are good little examples. How about what was your uh, like fueling and your sleep strategy? I mean, I think consistency, shortening, minimizing your time off the bike. What was your like plan going in to kind of manage all that stuff? It's a hard one to put an exact answer on my months in advance. Months. I mean, I think I probably had the plan to do it for maybe two months. So call it two months in advance. I'm like, I looked at the previous record and I saw that they're doing about 200 miles a day, give or take, because, you know, right then it was around five days. And I thought, you know, okay, that's a lot of riding, but I can do 200 miles a day. It's going to take whatever, 15 hours, maybe 18 hours, which leaves a lot of time to rest and sleep. And then the closer I got to the event and starting to pack my bike and ride it around and realize just how slow the bikes go. And then especially fast forward to the event itself where you realized how steep and how extraordinarily slow you're going to go. It made me realize that it's an event that's really going to benefit those who put an enormous amount of time on the bike and very, very little time off the bike. So I did not, I didn't have any strategy like ride X number of hours and rest Y hours. There were a couple days that I picked a particular spot that I wanted to stop. And actually I probably had, I had a plan for every single day. And then I was glad that I pulled the plug on some of them. But like for the first day, for example, was make it to the town of Whit Springs. That was 240 miles. So that meant riding from 730 in the morning till I forget one in the morning. And then I rested. And then my inexperience tells me that, okay, I'm supposed to not rest very long. And I see somebody chasing me on the track leader. So maybe this person's going to pass me if I sleep for too long. So let's just sleep for like three hours. And so I fairly arbitrarily set an alarm and, and set an alarm, got up and rode the next day. And I think that was probably my tactic as much as anything, like pay attention to the track leader, see how, how close it is. What is the risk of somebody passing me overnight? How long do I think I can sleep safely? So I slept as long as six hours and as short as an hour and a half. Did you kind of make an agreement with yourself? I mean, there's no way, like you said, that really anyone can train for these events. I mean, the the experience comes from doing them, putting yourself in them, and then through years and whatnot of doing them. Obviously, you cracked the nut in your first go, so what the hell am I talking about? But did did you kind of allow for yourself to have like a more of a loose race strategy than you would obviously typically have where you it's a 10-hour race and you're going to be very dialed in or a six-hour race or whatever it is? I mean, did you kind of allow for wiggle room to just like, all right, Ted, I don't know what I can do. Going to go out there, going to push it, going to do my best and just let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. And I'd almost argue that the same philosophy happens in any race. So even if it is a six hour race or 10 hour race, so call it, 
I don't know. Like DK is down to about dirty race, formerly known as dirty Kansas is, is about 10 hours. And the way you described it was kind of perfect because like you lay it all out there and the chips are going to fall where they may like you're queuing up off of your competitors. I think a bit more as you're riding directly next to them, as opposed to following on a track leader. Yeah. I think without the expectation and without any set explicit goal and saying, I need to do this, I need to win the race, I need to set an FKT, I need to finish. An event like this is just so much more about the adventure that allowed it to be much more loose. But then in the spirit of doing this crazy bikepacking thing, it was like, all right, let's see how ridiculously sleep deprived I can be. And so by the end, I was, you know, it's not running on fumes because fumes aren't sleep, but I was certainly running on sleep fumes. A popular question that everybody likes to know is, you know, did you have any hallucinations? What were the (laughs) impacts of the sleep deprivation? Because I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with, you know, all the athletes in in, in the bikepacking realm, but I mean, yeah, seeing things uh, that aren't necessarily there is, is kind of can be a common thing. And then, then you got to manage that safely, you know? So yeah, any any weird stuff going on? Not to the extent of like listening. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. That was another element of my research. Nothing zany. And to a degree, you know, I almost wish I, like, I took shrooms so that I could say <laughs> that I, I had some hallucinations. No, Rebecca Rush had told me, once you start making really poor navigational decisions, like that's a point at which you need to sleep. And I was aware of that. And I think that probably kept me focused enough. And and so there were a couple of times late in the night that I was like hardly staying awake, pedaling my bike. I got to get off. And again, to go back to how freaking punchy this course was, I got off my bike certainly dozens of times, which is something that I, you know, I've never gotten off my bike to go up a hill in training in years. And all of a sudden I'm doing it just dozens and dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times. Point being, it's late in the night. I'm getting off my bike to walk up another hill. And then you just, you know, you find yourself standing over your bike and then you find yourself dozing off and you're like, dude, wake up. Don't, you cannot fall asleep standing up on your bike. There are a couple of those that you say, all right, now it's time to, to get a rest. So, it's, you know, so much so even the, down to the wire, I slept, I think, two 15 minute naps in the final four hours where, you know, you think of the grand scheme of things, four hours is nothing. So like, why can't you just push through? Well, you can't because your body's revolting and you need to take those naps. Your body said, no, you you found the limit. Let's talk about your decision to go clockwise versus counterclockwise. And I mean, you mentioned, you know, following the dot. One dynamic that I like about that is it makes it harder to be like, okay, that I guess in this race, it was Andrew was really pushing you um, mm-hmm. for competing. So it was a little bit more straightforward, but so maybe it didn't apply as much, but I like that idea in general where it's a little bit harder to discern who your competitor is. So it kind of just forces you to be in your own little bubble and push as hard as you can. But what was your decision? And for anyone who doesn't know, actually, we should just mention that the Arkansas High Country, the racer has the option to race counterclockwise or clockwise and and you go. So yeah. what, what led to your decision to go? Let's see, I'm even trying to remember. You went counterclockwise. I went clockwise. Okay, sorry, I got to, uh, yeah. As you do that in this reverse screen, you're correct. I went that way. Flip a coin, sort of. Again, Bobby Wintel was my go-to person to ask any sort of, especially equipment question. What bivy do we do? What do we do here? How do I do lights, etc.? When it came to directions, I figured at some point it's going to be easy and at some point it's going to be hard, but it's a net even uh, total amount of ascending or descending. If you go clockwise or counterclockwise, so whatever. And then, you know, looking a little bit more at it, I go back to this, Alvin, you know, you have this 
you're looking at a computer screen and there's a four inch window where you see the profile. And so I see that, you know, it's like a lot of up and downs early. And then there's a couple big spikes toward the end. And I know that the, the, the highest point in Arkansas is 2,500 feet or something. So it's not like we're going over the continental divide. How hard can it be? I'm going to ride so that I do the harder part later, only to discover that the harder part later is an enormous, enormous kick to the teeth. I've joked about this before that I ran into Andrew at the relative halfway point, which was really cool. And, you know, we stop and chat for a while and he'd already done the course. And so he's very familiar with what he's going into. I am very unfamiliar with what I'm going into. He had alluded to the fact that it's going to be a little bit hard. And then it was later that day that I saw uh, an Instagram post put on by the race itself where it said, you know, very cool. Ted and Andrew are basically in a dead heat. Who is a harder course ahead of them? Hint, it's Ted. And that just <laughs> remember that. blew my mind because I thought back to my day one and there's so many super short, punchy climbs that you're going like max effort. As I've already said, you're trying to limit your max effort, but you're going as hard as you freaking can up these really short climbs. And it's just incessant dozens, certainly again, maybe hundreds of these little climbs that are just, they're a minute long or three minutes long. And they're, they're brutal. Whereas I think as I look at that, go back to that profile in my mind, okay, this is going to be like an easy long climb that hits that tall point later in the ride. The punchline delivered to me is that those really long climbs are a series of those short, steep climbs with even shorter descents. We could hit what, what amounted to a 30 mile climb later in the, later in the race, climb for two minutes, descend for 30 seconds, climb for three minutes, descend for 30 seconds. And it just, it was ridiculously hard. So I, uh, I haven't ridden the whole course, but I've ridden some of it uh, with actually Chuck Campbell and uh, Brandon Pack. They brought me in uh, in February and kind of gave me a little preview and we did a portion of the route. What'd you think of it? It's freaking hard, but I was going to ask you, I mean, uh, I'm just a regular cyclist, you know, but I'd love to get your take as a professional cyclist. Uh, how hard is it? Like, what were your thoughts on the difficulty of you know, take, you know, the, the tired out of it and all that I mean, kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. I mean, like, it's a booger of a route, I think. It's exceptionally hard. It's exceptionally hard under the best conditions. And we had great conditions. So that's not what I was alluding to. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine doing it in bad weather. Well, so what makes it hard for people listening? Okay, we're, we're going to nerd out on numbers for just a minute. Yes, please. But not at a super high level. So I consider a hilly ride a thousand feet of climbing per 10 miles of distance covered. Okay. And so this was 80,000 feet of climbing over 1,000 miles, which works out to 800 feet of climbing per 10 miles. So it's less than what I would consider a high amount of climbing. 800 feet is still a lot. So it's not. I'm not discounting it at all, but I'm like... But if you just look at the numbers on paper, you're thinking, yeah. okay, I, 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 this is in my wheelhouse. Certainly within my wheelhouse. I'm going to have a weighed down bike and it's you're going to have the cumulative effect of day after day after day. Really big take-home point is when it's flat it's flat and then when it's climby it's way more than 800 feet per 10 miles climbing so you know you might be doubling that you might be doing 1600 or 2000 feet of climbing per 10 miles so the climbing is incessant i'm not sure if there's ever a, a perfect time of year but the time of year that we did it there were a lot of downed leaves it makes picking a line a guessing game i relied on really durable tires i had great renee harris tires in their endurance plus casing so I had a, a great deal of trust going through these, you know, not rock gardens, but I suppose it's a gravelly rock garden. Yeah, I mean, some of the roads are very rough. I mean, some of them are good, some are paved, some of them are mm -hmm. just nasty. 
just just rough, right? I mean, the whole thing wears on you. There's not a lot of sections that you can relax. There's not a lot of sections that you can zone out. Like I was hoping and initially thinking of a second when I was talking to you about it a second ago, like, okay, maybe we have a five mile climb at a 2% grade and that'll take you up to some like 2,500 foot Vista. Okay. Well, with the exception of that's what you get on a paved route magazine, it's just short, steep, hard, punchy, really taxing, rough gravel, which is awesome. It's just so hard. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard. It's very that I think you know people think about Arkansas. They're not thinking mountains. You say okay, twenty five hundred feet is the highest point. Okay, you know you look at the elevation profile over a thousand miles, and you're like okay. But then to actually put wheels on it, um, it shocked it shocked me. I was like, holy! I did not bring enough gears. You know, I was there's some crazy gearing on the on the ride that we went on. Yeah, I didn't do the whole route, but it seems like you're either going flat down by a river or you're climbing straight up or going straight down. You know, I mean, it, it seems like those are the only options. A funny story in the race was it was the end, uh, beginning of day two when I looked at my brake pads and I'm like, oh man, I've already burnt through my rear brake pads. And that's a little bit scary when <laughs> you're thinking, okay, I have four days to go. And so at that point, I'm already like triangulating which bike shop I'm going to visit and Am I going to get there in time? And no, I'm not. So I have to call them up and figure out how to how to do that. And with with the funny story being, I went in with full set of front brakes and a portion of you know, better than half with rear brakes. But in my mind, it's like, well, why waste energy using your brakes on a descent? I'm a handy bike handler. Like, of course, I'm not going to use my brakes. But as I keep alluding to, these are really short, steep climbs, and that means really abrupt, steep descents. And they're sinuous and they're loose gravel and they're off camber and they're going into a, a river. And so you're hard on your brakes. It's a super challenging course. Brandon Pack almost watched me uh, fly off the side of one of those mountains coming down one way too fast. And I uh, took a nice little quick turn. And I mean, you know, the thing is, like, I was only out there on a three day trip. But if you're, at, you know, the end of, uh, you know, you're at mile 800 and you're coming down one of these things and you're sleep deprived and, it, they actually did have a guy die. I don't think it was on this. It, it was on the route. I don't think it was part doing part of the race, but um, a guy did fly off uh, the mountain just, and they they found him in a tree. But having breaks is good. Yeah, it's it's a tough course. So I I'm I'm happy to hear you say that. It makes me feel a little bit better about my own efforts on it because I was just like Jesus. I'm from Texas, man. So like we don't have the nearest mountain range to, close to me is nine hours away. You know. Yeah. Like, it's just a whole different ball game for me, but and I never, I, you know, I never dis discounted is not the word. I knew I had received enough warnings of how hard the course was. Sure, I was aware that. I mean, more than anything, people are like, "Dude, those Ozarks, they're real." And way back in the day, I mean, I could hinge back on this experience. I raced the Tour of Missouri, and that was two thousand nine, I think. And that was a road race, and that was super hard and hilly. And I did uh, Joe Martin stage race, and that was quite hard and hilly. And I was part of last year's, basically the exact same time, uh, when they rolled out the big sugar gravel event. And Oh, yeah. I mean, that was brutal in that just the, the number of flat tires we had in our group of a dozen. It's like, okay, well, there's super sharp gravel there. So, Man, I got invited to that initial uh, ride, and I wasn't able to make it. But uh, Yeah. Well, did you remember? I don't know if you remember the weather. You didn't miss much. It was a day. Oh, deluge. I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shout out to uh, Gabby, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great I folks know. up there in the NWA. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're a cyclist, you have to love what the community is doing, how obviously Walt, the Walden Foundation is like kicked in millions and millions of dollars and 
I mean, and the community is embracing cycling. They're seeing the economic benefits, the health benefits. I mean, people are, the real estate is gone. I actually, yeah, I've bought some land up there. So yeah, I mean. It is incredible. I mean. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Like where else are we going to see that kind of influx of capital? It's just not going to happen. I mean, even if you have like the hundredth wealthiest, wealthiest person in the world, surely they don't love bikes and it's incredible what they're doing it's incredible the benefit that's happening it's fun to go to downtown bentonville and and see the cycling utopia i mean like cars drive behind you patiently and and they're just accustomed to bikes it's almost it does feel a little bit like truman show going through that town but (laughs) yeah it's an incredible amount of infrastructure and resources and and the bike riding is spectacular well, to my understanding, the Walton Foundation has teamed up with People for Bikes. They've started a program where they want to use Bentonville, Fayetteville, you know, the whole Northwest Arkansas as a blueprint. And they're looking to extend funds to other cities, other communities, bring them a project, and 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 they're looking to extend it. So, yeah, I couldn't say enough good things about what they're doing just for the cycling community. But we came here to talk about you. So anyway, let's talk about you and your thoughts on Andrew. So for anyone who didn't didn't watch uh, the dots and you should have been, it was an epic race put on by you and Andrew Honor. I can't. Do you know how to pronounce his last name? I struggle with it. O N E R M A N N. Ownerman. Did I spell that right? That sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Andrew, but um, I did see on his Instagram where, you know, he, he's a local. He, was, it a, was it approximately a 12-minute post? Yes. Oh, yeah. A lot of people have seen that. Yeah, we should tell the listener, if you haven't seen it, it's on Andrew's Instagram page. It's a live video, which presumably has been archived because I watched it after a 24-hour period. He first hit my radar, literally and figuratively, when it was sometime in day two, and I was getting... It was nice and fun. I was getting texts from my mom and she was texting. I'm on a text thread with my mom and my brother. And as much as you really need to concentrate throughout the event, your phone is a good place to go uh, let your mind wander elsewhere. So it's cool to to have this text thread coming through. And at that point, I was only paying attention to Ezra, who's on my tail, chasing me in the clockwise direction. I wasn't yet paying attention to anybody going counterclockwise. For no particular reason, except, you know, that's just the way one's mind works in traditional bike racing. You see who's chasing you. And more, probably two-thirds or more did it clockwise, and a third went counterclockwise, so it's a smaller pool in the first place. Andrew, having ridden the course before, is probably the most experienced, coincidentally or ironically. But yeah, it was sometime in day two, and my mom said, hey, Andrew, this guy Andrew, going the opposite direction, and he's about tied with you. And I don't think he slept all night. (laughs) And like... I mean, that probably, it didn't put my mind in hyperdrive, but I certainly, he was on my radar then and I was paying attention and I'm thinking like, oh shoot, like this is a serious bike packer and the level of commitment, which involves the level of sleep, which is low, is what it's, what he's pouring in there and who knows what he's going to have later. Like due to my inexperience, I don't know if my body's just going to like shut down after two days or three days or what happens when, you know, it's had a total of four hours of sleep after two days. Like, so what he did was ridiculous. I mean, sort of animalistic and seeing him at the halfway point, he was chipper and excited and in a really good mood. And I'm like, yeah, shoot. Like I thought I was going hard and, and, and here's this guy who was going toe to toe with me. And like, gosh, like, what does he know that I don't? That's one of the things that I really, really love about 
bikepacking, ultra endurance sports is that it's kind of an equalizer where, you know, it's kind of cool. I mean, the narrative, you know, you got the, the local who, I mean, doesn't have a big name in cycling. You've probably never heard of them, never, you know, read anything. I don't even know if there's anything to read about them, but you know, and then you got a pro uh, cyclist with very limited bikepacking experience coming in and be like, I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen. And, and, but he certainly knew you, you know, Andrew <laughs> knew who you were. He went out there with the intentional win. Like you said, he's already completed the route. He's got that under his belt. He's he, from Fayetteville, which certainly is an advantage. I mean, so even if he hadn't ridden the route, he knows the area. He knows the area. He's used to riding in those conditions, all that kind of stuff. But I, I just wanted to give him a shout out because, I mean, he just poured everything into it. Not to say you didn't, but it's just such a cool event where you can see a guy with a regular job or whatever that just trains his ass off. And then you you have, you know, ex Are you still a professional? Are you a professional cyclist? What is your official? When I talk to, if I talk to anybody in the industry, I say I'm a professional bike rider. Um, you know, my, my goal is to put more people on bikes and get people excited yeah. about bike riding. It's, it's a far cry from professional bike racing that I once did. If I talk to somebody completely outside of the sport of cycling, then I do say professional cyclist because it's just simpler. But yeah, right. I, I draw in all of my income from the sport of cycling. So Andrew, again, pushed himself, hats off to him. He tapped out, I think, around mile 700 something, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, completely gutted. And y and y'all should go watch the video. It's one of the most honest. I mean, you tell he just finished a race. He's emotional and uh, it's, it's good to see. I mean, that's that's what it takes, you know. I mean, that was yeah. a real nice look into what does it take to, yeah, you can watch a dot and yeah, you can see him a halfway mark and he might be pretending to be uh, energetic, but, you know, he's gutting himself to get there. So when he tapped out, I've always found like it's easier to keep yourself motivated when you know somebody's chasing you and all that kind of stuff. Was there any shift in your own mental state or or your own like drive when he tapped out? Um, I mean, I'll preface the answer by saying, I wish he stayed in Yeah, and complete a hundred percent due respect. And, and I mean, basically I say I have a hundred percent respect to anybody who toes the line at the start line True. because it's such a commitment to get even there. And maybe I, I say that answer because once he was gone, it's almost like my motivation started to wane. Like there were times later that all of a sudden, it was a light bulb moment. I understand why people quit races in the lead late in a race. I keep going back to, I remember hearing a story of somebody who is leading a 100-mile running ultra marathon, and they quit at mile 93. You know, so you have 7% of the event left. Like, why can't you just walk it? And I was, it was coming down to those basically a similar place, having less than 100 miles to go and being like, this this is so freaking hard. Like all I want to do is quit. So what, what was the thing that kept you from quitting? That's a question I like to ask. I mean, everybody has the option to either quit or keep going and it, and it's easy to find excuses. That's the thing. I mean, I, I think only 39% of the field finished this year. And, and like you said, it's yep. not uncommon. It's a hard race. So nobody's going to give you shit if you tap. So you mm -hmm. have to find your own internal, you know, motivation. So what did you tap into to, to keep from quitting? Uh, I don't want to pull on too many heartstrings, but probably my family and knowing that, you know, they're at home and my wife watching Hazel's it's yeah. Like we've done a great job at this point, co-parenting and being, you know, together with each other for each other for Hazel and knowing that I'm at this event voluntarily, like I signed up for this. There is no 
unlike a former lifetime, there's no team that's relying on me. There's no prize money. There's no press. There's no, not press. There's no, uh, well, there's not global press. There's not. I was blown away with the press that I got. And, and moreover, the messages I got through the event and afterwards from all over the world, like I got messages the most from Germany and from Netherlands and, and Paris, France, and people like, oh, I've been watching all throughout the week. I mean, it was, maybe that was a motivation as much as anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially in the lead. Like, yeah, I, I joked that if Laura drove her car by me towards the finish, I might have been like, all right, I'm getting in the car. This, <laughs> that was hard. You alluded to it earlier, but that's one of the things that I do like about bike packing is that once you, you know, leave your car, or your hotel with all your stuff on your bike and you get out there, I mean, you either call somebody to come pick you up, which is never fun, or you just get your ass back to where you got to go. You're just in it. You know, you don't have a lot of choices. Yeah, big time. That was my other answer is especially, you know, you're, you're going to start questioning yourself around the times that no one's going to pick you up. Like when it's 3 a.m., <laughs> yeah. people are sleeping. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. At what point did you realize that the FKT was an option? Scotty and Ernie Lechuga had the couples FKT, which is four days, 22 hours. You got it down to four days, 20 hours. I mean, how much were you aware of and when did you decide that you were going to make a go at it or at all if you were if you were even thinking about it? I think my third day was exceptionally hard. And that was when I was going into those long extended climbs and had sections that I was pushing my bike for 30 to 60 minutes at a time. Just really long, brutal, brutal stuff. And again, taking a glimpse at the profile, I thought that I had wrapped that up on that what ended up being my penultimate day. And then I get into the final day and I have 215 miles to go. And I slept in. I, I got a hotel that night. It was awesome. And I woke up early and so well fed and well rested and well fueled. And I thought I had 215 miles to go, which I thought were going to be a relative cakewalk because I didn't realize just how challenging it was. The reality was it was insanely hard. So by my math, I was almost going to finish at like late in the day, 8 p.m. on Wednesday. And then the reality is I finished almost seven hours later. So I wasn't hinging success on it. But at that point, I thought I had it in the bag, the FKT, which was a wonderful fringe benefit. And then it started to get down to the wire. And I'm like, oh, geez, like I'm taking these 15 minutes naps instead of a four hour full full night of sleep. Because yeah, at that point, I would, did want to chase it down. So yeah, I guess the long story short is I, I thought it was safe and I was going to smash it out of the park <laughs> waking up that, that final day. And then the reality was was far from that. So, yeah, I mean, they put in a, a heroic effort in the time they have, too. So did you actually uh, in my notes, I put heroic effort, you know, for your first event. Yeah, you have obviously a great uh, history in cycling and competitive cycling. But actually, I mean, it was one of my questions. At what point did all of your training and experience fall off i mean you know having never done this i mean when did when did all of your training and your experience and all, all that just go out the window and you just had to find out how tough you were uh i mean maybe as early as the first night <laughs> yeah i i think i ended up sleeping about maybe two hours so waking up that day and going about the day actually no i take that back because yeah i was sleep deprived and then my i had like these massive i don't even know what you call them like these my eyes were gaunt, but then they were puffing out below that. I'm mean, like, I looked like trash. And then fast forward to what ended up being my third night. That's where I slept for an hour in a 
I think they call them a holler, holler, <laughs> holler. Um, on the side of the road. I mean, that was beautiful. It was cold and perfect. And I made my three cheese macaroni and cheese and, and then woke up just absolutely freezing after a couple hours, whatever it was. And I mean, yeah, you're just at that point, you're almost, you are in a survivalist mode and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic because it's not, I don't know. Like we said, you could call and someone could come get you, but right. that's not what you signed up to do. You signed up to get you, your stuff, everything to the finish line. And so, yeah, yeah I think, liking it to a sense of survival. I mean, I think that's one of the things that is appealing about this is that as human beings, we are not pushed as we used to, you know, evolutionarily. We're used to being way more capable, but now we have air conditioning houses and cars. And so I I think there's some kind of appeal of putting yourself in these like very difficult situations and really like gritting through it. I don't know if that's true Mm -hmm. or not, but I think about that sometimes. Yeah, completely. I mean, it is at the end of the day, the whole thing is a self challenge. So, you know, it was fun to be finished and then be following the other racers. And we had in the brief time that we spent together, socially distanced, whether it's rolling out from the start line or whatever, like I empathize with them. I feel for them. I'm sending them messages. I'm excited to follow them. And, you know, just knowing that they're going through the same things. So, I mean, hinging back to your question, it's almost like I couldn't really rely on my other experience in the sport outside of hard headedness and hard work is going to be you know, what pays off any more than soccer is a completely different sport than hockey. Like you're trying to get this unit into a net, (laughs) but so on one hand they're identical. And on the other hand, they're totally different sports. And and these are totally different sports, world tour racing versus bikepacking. Great analogy. Thanks. I just made that up. Yeah, that was was actually a good one. Um, (laughs) Do you think that we'll see other, so we've seen Lachlan uh, come over and do some endurance. You've done some, do you think we'll see other pro riders, tackle some of these events i'm wondering if like it's a if it's a way to like i see it as like i said an equalizer on some extent so maybe as you're older later on in your career it could be a way to like still be competitive still you know stay active in cycling i don't know if you had any thoughts on that i've wondered it myself i mean i don't i guess i make the the closer comparison to gravel right there's a lot of pro cyclists who are dabbling in gravel as their careers slow down or or pivot or shift or whatever the heck and gravel is just simpler it's more tangible it's something you can do because that's a closer sport comparison as opposed to it's just this seismic shift to think of what bikepacking is because you have to be so self-reliant and so we've seen and not just the pro cyclists who are coming to gravel we just see gravel as this it's this gravitization there are people coming to gravel from all walks of life whether they ride a bike or not there is also a gravitization magnetization to bikepacking but it's going to happen on a considerably smaller scale is my estimate just because of those leaps that you have to take you have to be comfortable camping you have to be comfortable with the expenses that are incurred because you need to buy bags and all sorts of new equipment so i think we're going to see folks coming over whether the professional cyclists are not more and more of them just to a lesser degree than you're going to see elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, will we see more pro cyclists? Uh, definite maybe. <laughs> definite maybe. Yeah, that's a fair answer. I think it's inevitable. You know, as I've just been a fan of the sport, I felt like we were going to start seeing some of that and really curious to see how that experience and uh, is going to translate. Um, and in your case, it translated pretty well. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I think ultra endurance comes down to stubbornness, you know, and you find out really how stubborn you are, you know, everybody's going to be hurting, everybody's going to be having problems, but can you get through it? 
can you sleep less? Can you suffer more? Can you be stubborner than the person next to you? And it's really like a test of will in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Last question, most important. Any future bikepacking uh, in your future, uh, maybe namely the Tour Divide, maybe you want to go out there and smash another record. Anything else on your radar? Um, conveniently, listening to the podcasts that I have heard up to this point, I understand that you, your body is really only capable of doing one of these a year. I mean, I'd be more comfortable if I had more sensation and strength in my hands than I do right now. <laughs> um, it is coming back, and that is reassuring, but Goodness gracious, I wish it was quicker. Yeah, I, uh, at the end of, I say this often, apologies if you've heard this, at the end of Dirty Cans in my first year, it basically took an entire year for me to be like, yeah, that was fun. I want to come back. That was cool. That was, I dig it. Because up until that point, that year in the interim, I was like, that was awful. That was so hard. That was ridiculous. I don't ever want to do that again. I did my cross Vermont ride, that 21 hour, 310 mile adventure. That took about, a week, I mean, a handful of days to be like, um, yeah, I guess I could do that again. That was miserable in the final hundred miles, but I'll do it again. And then with Arkansas, I finished and I was so empty and so dead and so brutally beat up. And I, immediately I was like, that was cool. I want to do more of that. Oh, really? Yeah. Immediately. Wow. What, yeah. what was it that stuck with you in that way? I mean, maybe it is the fact that you can only do one of these a year. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just liked how, how different it was. It was something totally new for me. You have to be so holistic. You have to be aware of your mechanical prowess and your mechanical abilities as much as your health, as much as your sleep, as much as your nutrition, as much as your packing, as much as your planning, as much as, I mean, all these things came together that, that you really don't have in any other event. That doesn't happen in gravel. Like gravel is you start at a start line and you've raced with everybody else to the finish line. It certainly doesn't happen in world tour racing where you have all the support of that team aforementioned an hour ago. So, yeah, probably just the newness of it was really cool to me. I've heard before from other people who are successful in, in something that it's fun to kind of be new at something and to challenge yourself again in, in a new way. And not to say you're not being challenged in other ways, but yeah, just something completely new that you're like, you can really sink your teeth into or use whatever analogy you want to use, but makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that hits it on the head for me. Put you on the spot. Is there an event that you would like to do bikepacking-wise that other than the Arkansas High Country? Um, someone asked me in the fairly immediate aftermath, he's like, hey, Ted, can you send me a list of all the events? And I'm like, I don't know. I literally told him, this was an Instagram direct message. I don't know. As soon as you find it, why don't you tell me? And <laughs> maybe this is a shout out and call out to anybody to do that for me. I don't even know where to start. Yeah. Um, I can list a handful of events that I know exist, but I know there's dozens more. Right. Um, so yeah, Tour Divide is something that is interesting to me. And by comparison, like Arkansas is a sprint compared to that right. by pure distance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, going to the, the Atlas Peaks, that would be kind of cool down in, in Morocco. I mean, oh, yeah. I don't know. It's all it's still so new to me that I'm not ready to commit to anything. Fair enough. Let alone like you can't get to Canada right now. So <laughs> how do you even start tour divide? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're talking about uh, maybe just starting at the, the uh, USA border um, in 2021. I've heard rumors of that, depending on what happens with the virus and everything. But anyway, let's not end on a virus. No, sir. Let's end on a... Uh, Congratulations again, FKT on the Arkansas High Country, your first ever bikepacking race, and you smashed it. How long do you think that FKT is going to hold up? 
Uh, certainly not forever. I mean, there were so many times late in, in particular days that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm creeping right now. Like, I wish I were going harder. Uh, how long will it last? <sighs> the year is 2020. I bet it's gone by 2022. All right. And now that's a challenge. Somebody who wants to take it is going to like go take it. I think, year. I mean, as soon as you went out there and laid an FKT, I mean, as soon as you do that, people are immediately chomping at the bit to go. It's just the way we are. So that's part of the fun, uh-huh. right? <laughs> Perfect. But you're the man right now. Congrats again. Thanks for taking some time and uh, sharing uh, your experience with our audience. And good luck to you in the future, my friend. My my distinct pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time. Excellent questions. Thanks very much for, for doing it. And thanks for listeners for listening. And uh, if people want to tune into your podcast, what's that called and where can they find that? That is called King of the Ride. Um, you can see me promoting the heck out of it on all things. I am Ted King. That is my social media, but yeah, King of the ride on all the Spotify's and, and iTunes and all those things. So yeah, please check it out. Very good. Thank you, my friend. Have a good one. All right. Have a great night. All right. All right. Mr. Ted King, everybody. What can I say, Ted? Thanks again for coming on the podcast and welcome to ultra endurance bikepacking. Uh, it's great to have you here. You are obviously a great steward of the sport. He's just a nice guy, right? He's a family man, super nice guy. He's also a freaking assassin on a bicycle. So who can't love and respect that? All right. Well, so for next week, I've already got it in the can. My interview with Kate Boyle, who is also off of an FKT on the Cocapelli Trail. For anyone who doesn't know, her, Kurt Refsnyder, and Leo Wilcox all went out there early November and all were trying to put down a fast time and see if they could knock down the FKTs that were established. Kurt and Kate both set new FKTs. So yeah, we got to uh, chat with Kate about her FKT. So a lot of racy going on. We got Ted FKT and Kate FKT but that's great. I love it all. I love the racing. I get so excited by it. I'm so impressed by it. God, it scares me, man. Some of these people are... The things that you have to do to win an Arkansas high country, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, That's like another level. So I have mad respect for these people. It's so much fun to talk to them and pick their brains and uh, get to share those stories with you. All right, everybody. Well, I hope that you will stay safe this holiday season. Thanksgiving will be coming up here in a couple days, and I wish you and your family the best. Obviously, a crazy time of year, crazy time in our lives. We'll always remember 2020. It'll go down in the history books, I have no doubt. But take care of yourselves. Love each other. Find reasons to be thankful. And don't forget to go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes.